All right, so as we uh, prepare for covenanting and also for a baptism, I want to draw your attention to a text in Philippians. So if you could please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. So the book of Philippians um, is a short book written by the Apostle Paul. It's about joy in the midst of suffering. And we're going to be looking at uh, basically chapter 3 and a part of chapter 4. The beginning of the book has the classical Pauline you know, welcome. Uh, you get into chapter 1, and there's a message about thanksgiving and prayer. Uh, in the middle of chapter 1 through chapter 2, there's a discussion about um, Paul's ministry. There's a discussion about the gospel. There's a, a discussion about the role of, of the Philippians and how the gospel has come to them. There's a, a call for uh, loyalty to the truth and a, uh, a working in unity, and to look upon the example of Christ in the midst of his suffering and his work, and the call to grow in unity. And this idea that then Paul is working with other people, and that the unity, the example of suffering, and the growing together in unity further allows them to be able to work together for the gospel. And so we get into chapter 3, and we begin to see... Um, something that we'll be reading through, but what essentially happens there is this, this conflict against error, this false gospels, false churches, and the idea of a, of a false circumcision comes up, uh, which relates very much to the idea of a false baptism, and the idea that there are many times when people put water in the name of the Trinity on people, and uh, it's, it's an illegitimate thing. And so this, this idea that there is a way of abusing the signs of God, but then there's also the, the right use. And so in chapters 3 and the beginning of 4, there is this idea that we are here, the church has attained some, to some things and is more to attain to. And so there's a call to work together to go further. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, uh, an exhortation to go further continuing on this idea of working together it ends with sort of giving thanks for what we have and looking to our contentment in god and then we're able to work together and then there's a a blessing at the end of the book so that's the outline of philippians one so please stand with me and we're going to read philippians chapters three in the beginning of four finally my brethren rejoice in the lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's a bridge. And so, that idea of, of the bridge there, the, the resurrection, we're going to be talking about resurrection now in a couple of senses. So, keep, keep a sharp eye here. Verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who, who so walk. As you have us for a pattern, for many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord Jesus. Sorry. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. You may be seated. Act of covenanting is a solemn act. It's a swearing in the sight of God. Often it's also in the sight of individuals, people. In this case, an assembly. And it's with that assembly as well. Who you unite yourself with is a very important thing. You can covenant with dogs or evil workers. You can covenant with those who 
seek to take the sacraments of God and abuse them. Or you can covenant with the true church. You can covenant with those who worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul reminds us of the things that he was raised in and at the same time how those things were nothing for him. It says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Right? He, he had a reputation amongst the Jews. He had a reputation amongst the only visible church on the earth for a couple thousand years. Right? This, this people going from Abraham 2,000 years before Christ to Christ coming that you have a couple of millennia of the Old Covenant Church. And now the Old Covenant Church largely was rejecting the Messiah at the turning into the New Covenant, which was prophesied. But all that position, all that gain, all that prominence, and all those things that had actually even been commanded by God were counted as loss by Paul for Christ. Verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word for rubbish in the Greek is dung. I count it as dung. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Everything is worthless in comparison to wisdom. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ, is more valuable than anything else, and those things must be counted as loss in contrast to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Entering into a covenant is a life and death promising. And it involves a public taking on of the identity of Christ. This is a time when being Christian is not a particularly useful thing in polite social society. Right? We, we, we find that the, the community at large does not find the fish on the back of the truck to advance sales. And so this covenanting, this taking on publicly of the name of Christ and putting the mark of baptism upon you and repeatedly publicly confessing and proclaiming the death of Christ and the Lord's Supper is a choice to take on opposition to the world, a sworn opposition to the world, and to be under the banner of Christ in a continuous waging of war. It is a statement that all the things are dung in comparison to Christ. And so, this commitment is a statement that you believe that gaining Christ, gaining the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, growing in faith, obtaining wisdom, and the righteousness that is from God by faith, it's worth trading all of those things. Now, 
Verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. By knowing Christ, knowing the power of His resurrection, knowing the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. By knowing Christ. It's popular to talk about the difference between knowing about Christ and having a relationship with Christ. The knowledge of Christ is the knowledge about Christ. There is no dichotomy. There is no separation. When you know about Christ, you know Christ. His Word is His mind. When you have His Word in your mind, you have the knowledge of Christ. There's not a difference between the knowledge about Christ and the knowledge of Christ. The enjoyment of the relationship is something you get by knowing Him. And that grows. The enjoyment of the relationship grows. And the way it grows is by knowing Him better. And the way you enjoy His special presence is in His ordinances, His Word and prayer and the sacraments, and the sacraments with understanding. The sacraments will do nothing to sanctify you if you do not understand them. They will do nothing to grow your faith if you are not meditating on the truths they represent. The knowledge of Christ is the thing. The power of His resurrection is the power that He was resurrected by. The power by which He will resurrect our bodies. The power by which He resurrects our souls. The power by which He more and more subdues our inward death of unbelief and vivifies, gives life to our faith, and increases it. That is the power of His resurrection. More and more as you are resurrected in the soul, as you increasingly have more faith, you will have fellowship in His sufferings. But the affliction will seem lighter and lighter in contrast. As you suffer more with greater faith, as you fight harder and longer, as you have more places where you see the need to engage, as you find more deficiencies in your own soul, as you see the need to engage, as the flesh, the world, and the devil will become more clear to you in your sight than they have ever been before, so too will the clarity of the army under the banner of Christ. They're more for us than against us. There is an angelic host, a triune God. There is general assembly of the saints. And our numbers and ratio are growing. More and more, the church matures and increases. Imagine a world where every nation on the planet is pagan and wicked, and very, very few believers exist at all. And the ones that do exist are in a very small geographic zone. And where they are, they're a very small percentage of that group. And instead, go forward to what has happened after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sending forth of His Spirit, the apostolic powers given out, the preaching of the Word that is contained in the book of Acts, the completion of the canon, the going out of the church, the capturing of the maturing of the doctrine of the church and of the standards of behavior in the catechism catechetical and confessional standards of the church and you see the advancement that has occurred that for us now it is a part of our basic catechesis for people to understand the trinity and the incarnation and the lord's supper and justification by grace alone through faith alone and the mediatorial work of christ alone the authority of the scriptures all of these things we expect that people will know this in coming to the lord's supper 
and in the 300s, the greatest educated bishops in the world were meeting together to talk about whether the Trinity was a biblical doctrine. A hundred years later, is Christ really God? And if so, is he God in a body? Is he like God with a meat suit? Right, this is, this is a prominent doctrine. God in a meat suit. That. We look upon the remnants of Western civilization falling apart around us, and we think the power of the resurrection is a little thing. It should not be despised. The fellowship and his sufferings that we're going to have, that may increase. That fellowship and his sufferings is a glorious fellowship that brings with it rewards that last at the cost of blessings that are temporary. And the enjoyment of God increases in the midst of those difficulties. And the enjoyment of the fellowship together increases in the midst of those difficulties. We're conformed to his death. We die to the world. We die to the flesh. And we die to Satan. And in that conformity, in that transformation, the other side of the coin is resurrection. Every part of that being conformed to his death involves a receiving of the power of his resurrection. And in all these things, there is the goal of filling the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea, and there is the individual goal of getting the most knowledge of God that you can before you shuffle off this mortal coil. So you seek to attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Right, the doctrine of perfection is bunk. It's bosh. That's Turkish for something. It's not profane, I assure you. And it means nothing. It means like meaninglessness. Paul had not attained to perfection. We will not attain to perfection in this life. But we are to press on towards it. We may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of us. Right? He accomplished our redemption. He applies it to us by the power of His Spirit and lays hold of us and will not let us go. The faith He gives cannot be destroyed. The knowledge of Him cannot be taken away. So, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do... Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward towards those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As an individual, you are striving to go upward. Right? That prize of an increasing knowledge of God. And that advances the goal of the glory of God in the earth. It is for your good, and it fits together with the good of others. And so this idea that there is a lot that's happened. You've gone through a lot in your life. Your individual experiences are meaningful and powerful. God knows them. He planned them. He predestined them. He made sure that every detail of the experience of your life has occurred exactly the way it has. But don't dwell on it. 
Don't let it be a thing that stops you from advancing. You leave it behind, and you say, there is more to be done, there is more to be learned. The things I know are tools to know more. The things I do are things that have been habituated so that I can do more good works. And so I'm going to put off the things that have come before. And those things that have come before, I'm going to leave them behind and focus on what lies ahead. A focus on the mission. Press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. The prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So pressing toward the goal yields a prize of both the upward call itself, in the sense that like as you're pressing on, there's this calling to continue to pull you up. There's this continuing sanctification in the pressing on. But there's also a blessing that comes at the end of that upward call. There are the things we receive as rewards at the second coming. There are rewards now, and there are rewards then. And pressing toward the goal gives both prizes. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. So even when you're mature in the faith, there's a need to maintain unity and the need to see places where you're not focused on the goal, places where your mind is not set upon the knowledge of God, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so... In covenanting, that's one of the ordinances to push on. There are a few things that motivate human beings, like oaths. When you swear to do something and call for blessing and cursing, and then you are sworn together so there's a bond of brotherhood, that establishes a sort of pressure that people voluntarily enter into press on the obligation deepens as you recommit and as you continue and as you work with other people and the sense of not wanting to let down your brothers the sense of knowing that there's more work to be done and there's time for the sense that you need to be moved up to maturity and in immaturity continue to press on and to pull us up. As many as are mature, have this mind. Have this mind of pressing on to the goal. Now, does that mean that those who are immature should not press on to the goal? They should. What's the, what's the way station? What's the check mark? What's the thing along the way? Well, to figure out the point to which the church has matured to become one of the mature. So our confessional standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, we've adopted the directory of worship. Those are the things that we're saying, here's a mature encapsulation of the faith on these matters. So you commit. You've studied the shorter catechism. You have studied the church covenant. You're swearing to pursue the knowledge of God, to apply the knowledge of God, to spread the knowledge of God. And so in doing that, 
the roadmap to seeking a maturity involves the use of that confessional standard in searching the scriptures to see if these things are so. Now, the mature should have that mind. Verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. This idea that there's a point to which the church has attained, and we all need to strive to reach that attainment point of the mature. It's a lot easier to learn stuff when people have already figured it out. The first time somebody runs a whatever minute mile, I don't know, I don't think about running very much. So whenever anybody achieves the whatever minute mile, very quickly thereafter, other people go, oh, how'd you do it? And they accomplish the same thing. What does it take, like five hours to run a mile? That's what it takes for me. Is that the the new mark? So people accomplish something. And then the following on is much easier. The first person to develop a technology pays the most. The people who follow after, it's a lot cheaper. And that's true in the church as well. To the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. We need to study that rule. It's one of the reasons I'm trying to go through the larger catechism on the law carefully. For us to consider, what is it that has been taught about the Ten Commandments? In our professional standard. Let us be of the same mind. What, what are the doctrines that we should speak together? And so I did a series through the Westminster Confession a year ago, two years ago, ten years ago. I don't know. Time has no meaning to me anymore. And so we went through the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the desire was to show, look, here, here's the confessional standard and how it's how it's been captured. Same rule, same mind. And getting there and having a knowledge of that, having a, a, a good sense of what the Bible says. These are the things that we press on in. And figuring out there's, there's a history of combat in terms of the intellectual sphere. There are philosophers that bring challenges to the Christian religion. And so having a sense of logic, strong understanding of logic, and then also understanding the intellectual history of the challenges that have been brought against Christianity. The, those are, that's an intellectual maturation to the point of being mature in the church in its current state. So we want to be of the same rule, of the same mind. So there's a call then. So those who are mature, there's this idea that the brethren join in following my example. So you follow the example of those who are mature among you. And you note those who so walk. There's a call to note two kinds of walkers. Those who walk in a mature way. Those who walk in a defiling and wicked way. You take note of one to try to follow after you take note of the other to beware. Now, looking to the mature in the faith for a pattern, that puts pressure on the mature to keep pressing on because the mature have problems. They have failings. They have points of ignorance. 
And that pressure is higher on them. And then there's this sort of trying to learn and follow after and pick up things. And there's a goal of catching up. And then working together, you can drift off of each other, making, taking turns. Now, verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Right? So there are two kinds of walking. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. Hey, but why shouldn't we do that? Because our citizenship is in heaven. And our, our place is in the kingdom of heaven. That's the domain that we should be concerned about advancing. And that doesn't mean that you go, I'm just going to go think about things in my room by myself and not do anything. No, advancing the the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ involves studying and praying, yes, by yourself in your room, but also going and doing things and applying what you've learned and doing the things you're praying will happen. You do that typically together. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. So, Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, literally in His body, in time. He is still resurrected. He will return in His resurrected body. He's going to resurrect our bodies, and there's going to be a glorious transformation of our bodies. And in the process of time now, on the way there, he is doing a sort of resurrecting of the world. He is transforming using the same sort of power. This goes back to the four things we listed before, right? The knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the power of his resurrection, the knowledge of the fellowship of his sufferings, and being conformed, the knowledge of being conformed to his death. And so the resurrection from the dead is a thing that occurs in time. And it's also a process that occurs. And there's a resurrecting that's happening. Individual souls are brought to the knowledge of God and then increase in the knowledge of God. Bodies are brought into increasing obedience to Christ and made into tools of righteousness. Christ is able to subdue all things to himself and he is doing so. He has subdued us and He is subduing us. And He will subdue all things under our feet. He will be subdued under Him and He does it by subduing it under us. Therefore, beloved, therefore my beloved and longed for brethren. Right? Who do you feel comfortable saying you long for? Right? Like, and you're just like, this is, sounds like something's going to get me in trouble. Right? But we should long for each other as brethren in purity. Right? desiring to work together, desiring to accomplish things together, desiring to hear the truths that God is making known in the minds of each other, longing for the brotherhood, longing for a fellowshipping in the sufferings. There's suffering. You're not going to avoid suffering. Better to fellowship in the suffering rather than to suffer alone. Bearing each other's burdens, loving each other. This idea that his brethren are his crown and joy. 
right? A crown is a glory, a sign of authority, a sign of effective rule, right? If you're blessing people, the more you're able to bless other people, right, that's a crown to you. And joy, right? There's no greater joy than to see your children walk in the truth. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. There's a call to advance. There's a call to stand fast. We don't retreat at the points of attack. And we advance. One of the best things about being attacked is that one of the most effective offensive is a counteroffensive. If you're standing firm and resisting the devil and he retreats, advance, pursue. The place of weakness, you're struggling against it, you hold off the devil, you resist temptation, advance in that discipline. What is the thing you're struggling in? And you study that thing, you pray about it, and you advance in it. So there's this general call to be of the same mind back in verse 16. It's called to the mature. And there's a particular. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. The same purpose, same doctrine. Desire the same thing. Seek each other's good. Seek the goal together. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Right? He is stirring himself up, and he's stirring up his co-laborer to love. Right? It's, it is so easy to have invective and to pour out negativity and to discourage each other and to knock over each other's motivation. Who do you know that stirs you up to love and good works? Right? That idea, like, value that and be that. Stir each other up to good works. It is so easy to be negative. It is so easy to think that everything is falling apart and everybody's losing and, and all this. But instead, look, there's a fight between Euodia and Syntyche. I want them to be unified. And I urge you to help with that. These women are precious women. They have labored with me in the gospel. They didn't just labor with me. They labored with Clement, too. Not just Clement. The rest of my fellow workers. More than that, their names are in the book of life. Right, that right there, that stirring up of the sense of the value of those that you fellowship with, caring for them as immortal souls, vessels that know God and can know God more. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, I will say, rejoice. When the last time you heard about a church fight, did you end your conversation about it with let's rejoice all the time? <laughs> Rejoice all the time. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Let your gentleness be known to all men. William Perkins has a great book on that one sentence. Not even the whole verse, just that sentence. Gentleness, epiakeia. This, this self control, controlled strength. This moderation of the soul. The context is in, there's, there's, there's this church fight between Yodia and Satiki. Stir them up, cause them to love each other. You need to love about. You need to love them. You need to rejoice in this. 
And while you're dealing with this conflict, let the degree to which you moderate your own soul be known to everybody. You know how that happens? It doesn't happen when you deal with mild irritations marginally well. You know how that happens? It happens when people are freaking out and you're like, well, let's reconsider this, shall we? Right? That, that process is the process by which your moderation of soul, your gentleness, your self-control, your epiakeia is known to all men. And the Lord's at hand. He's near. He gives strength. He promises He's going to go with us to the end of the earth so that our strength of soul can be made known. And we can disciple people. Don't be anxious for anything. Verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay, so this, this uh, the peace of God is something that we are going to learn more and more about forever. And so it surpasses our understanding. It's not that it's ununderstandable. We're going to keep learning about it. There's an infinite amount to learn about God that will increase your peace. And that allows you to give a life or death swearing, to hold the line and advance the line with this motley crew. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Right, this, you focus the mind, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ as you think about these things. How, how do you know if something's true? It's revealed by God. How do you know something's noble? Well, God has said it's good. How do you know if it's just? God and his law has shown us what's due to people. How do you know if it's pure? Well, God's shown us what's holy and clean. How do you know it's lovely? God defines beauty by the fittingness of things together, the right ordering of them. What are the things that bring about good report? Well, the book of Proverbs is filled with a lot of advice about the things that help your reputation to be better. If there's any virtue or valor, strength, right? That, that, that comes from the Holy Spirit, and we know about the gifts of the Spirit and the talents that He gives. Anything that's praiseworthy. Right? These, are, these are all the things that God gives us the labels and the categories. He tells us what are the things we're thinking on. We're supposed to meditate on these things. And guess what? In Psalm 1 it says, meditate on the law of God day and night. It gives you the categories, the labels, to think about those things. And you can find particular examples in the world, and you can think about those in the context of what you have learned from the Word of God. And you can meditate on those as particular examples of the manifestation of that. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Any degree to which you've seen a godly example from me. Any, any degree. Those are the things you should do. The things that are contrary to Scripture, rebuke me. But as far as those good things, those are an example that you should follow and do. The idea that God will be with you to give you strength to go through it, to advance. So that's my exhortation to you in covenant. In being baptized. You enter in and you press on toward the mark.
or you seek maturity, that you be ready to do battle, that you give other people shelter, that you be a part of being able to press on and that you pursue being in that place quickly, that you try to do what you can in the context of covenanted community to advance. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Nye. Thank you for your teaching, Elder Just, Just a very, very minor thing. Um, in uh, chapter 4, verse verse 3, uh, the majority text uh, starts out with yes, and I urge you also. Um, just wanted to mention Thank you. Sorry for missing that. I appreciate it. So, the majority text, chapter 4, verse 3, says, Yes, and I urge you also. So the yes is added. So it's an, emph- it's an emphatic statement. Okay, thank you. So more emphasis, right? more emphatic. I wasn't emphatic enough. More emphaticness in what I just said to you. <laughs> All right. Um, Anything else? Comments, questions, objections? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would give strength to these men and to this congregation. I ask that Mr. Price and Mr. Coatney would be greatly blessed in baptism and in covenanting. I ask that you would help them in the studies that they've engaged in as they've considered the covenant, as they've considered the catechism, as they've been engaging in daily worship, that they would more and more be empowered in that, that you bless their Sabbath keeping and cause them to delight in it, to call the Sabbath a delight, and that they would grow in the knowledge of you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to go through the covenant. We've had teaching on the covenant um, recently. There's a lot of discussion about it. And so what I'd like to do is to focus a little bit on baptism as we uh, go into uh, the covenanting and baptism. And so this, this teaching um, will be a quick overview of baptism. So the Westminster Confession in chapter 28 of baptism says the following, Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is, by Christ's own appointment, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Now, the word of institutions normally used for baptism Right, the word of institution is as follows. And so I'm giving you the word of institution now. And so this shows to you that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, that he commanded it, sorry, baptism. He instituted baptism. He commanded baptism to be done. And he gave to us approved examples of how to deal with it. Now, the approved example uh, is not contained in this verse. Um, but there are other verses. For example, we have Christ himself being baptized, and we have the baptisms that occur in the book of Acts. So those are approved examples. But this contains the other two purposes. It shows the institution, 
and it shows the command. So Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Go and, ba- and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So that's given. Now we read about the newness of life and uh, regeneration and remission of sins in the Philippians text. And so those are all things that are emblemized in in baptism. Section 2 of the Confession reads as follows. The outward element to be used in the sacrament is water. So we have water there set apart for a holy use. Wherewith the party to be baptized is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Right? We just read that in the Matthew 28 text. By a minister of the gospel, lawfully called thereunto. Three. Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Now, the, the thing that's most commonly talked about, the Old Testament talks about sprinkling a lot. And the New Testament and the prophecies about the New Testament talk about pouring. The idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Um, so this, the idea of pouring is a sort of sprinkling is smaller amounts and pouring is larger amounts. And the use of pouring, I think, is the uh, means that is most appropriate in the New Covenant, though a sprinkling is valid, as is dipping or submerging. On the other hand, the only places where baptism is talked about in terms of submerging are the two typological baptisms. We have one with Noah's flood, and the people who get submerged are not the people who do well. And also, there's the baptism in the Red Sea, which has a sprinkling that occurs when the Israelites are passing through the Red Sea, and the people who get submerged do not do particularly well. The Egyptians are drowned in the sea. So the, the idea of pouring as the principal thing in the New Covenant era um, is why we pour. Section 4. Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So uh, right now we have two who are professing Christ and professing the desire to obey Christ and promising to do so. And so that is the basis for the baptism in this case. Section 5. Although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed to it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Right? So you can be baptized and not be saved, and you can be saved without being baptized. Six, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, and that's, that word offered is being used in an old way, it's uh, presented for acceptance or rejection. So it's not only presented, but it's really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So this idea is the grace of God in baptism for the elect is put on display. It's exhibited to be looked upon. And it is actually conferred or given by the Holy Ghost. 
And so that's to the elect, whether they're young or old. And that doesn't have to occur at a particular time. You can be baptized and then converted far later, and the blessings of baptism are yours. You could be converted and far later get baptized, and the blessings of baptism are yours. And so that's something to note. Seven, the sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered to any person. And so that's why, gentlemen, we talked to you about historical uh, possibilities of your having been baptized and wanted to look into what are the churches that did that because if they're lawful baptisms, they're not to be redone. And so there are a number of persons who uh, are in this church, who are members of this church, who were not baptized in this church. Most of the adults in this church were baptized elsewhere and received valid baptisms that were accepted. And so those are things that we need to take account of. So we try to carefully guard baptism and to not unnecessarily uh, administer it, but to administer it once and to try to be careful to figure that out. So that being said, Mr. Price, Mr. Coatney, if you please come forward. We'll be administering the covenant and then baptizing. Um, what we need to do is to also bless and give thanks uh, for the water. Um, and so we'll be doing that in just a moment as well. So I'll thank God for that. We'll pray for the blessing of God on the baptism, administer the covenant, and then baptize. And uh, appreciate Mr. Coatney informed me that kilt is roughly the Scottish equivalent of a tuxedo, so you're all underdressed. <laughs> so I appreciate the honoring of the Lord's Assembly in that way. Now, um, Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless Mr. Courtney and Mr. Price in this assembly, that as we admit these two new members, that it would be an honor unto you and to your son. Father, we ask that you would bless the water as a symbol of the pouring out of the Spirit and the washing in the blood of Christ and the burial with Christ, the resurrection with Christ, the dying with Christ. We ask that you would bless this visible word, that you would cause us to think about it those of us who are not being baptized but witnessing this, we ask that you'd help us to think upon our own baptisms and to improve our own baptisms, to make use of the reality of these baptisms now to be a profit to us in considering our own. And so, Father, we thank you for electing us from eternity past, for accomplishing our redemption in Christ, and for applying that redemption by the Holy Spirit giving us faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Mr. Cody and Mr. Price, I will read the vow, and then I will, at the end of the vow, say, do you? And if you agree to the vow, then please say, I do. I encourage you to speak loudly with your answers. This is an opportunity for you to confess your faith before men. So, first vow. Do you believe all of the statements and necessary inferences of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the rationally coherent and infallible word of God, the very truth itself, and the only rule for faith in life. Do you? I do. I do. Do you believe that the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a faithful summary of the basic doctrines of Scripture? Do you? I do. I do. Val 3. Do you believe that the one living and true God is a spirit? who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and that this one God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
and that these three persons are one God, the same in being, in agreement in all things, and equal in power and glory. Do you? I do. I do. Thou four, do you believe that the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct beings, two distinct minds, and yet one Christ forever. And that Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. Do you? I do. I do. Vow 5. Do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Repent of your sin and believe that God, by grace alone, has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in His sight, only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. Do you? I do. I do. Vow 6. Do you believe that because God is the Lord, your God, and your Redeemer, having saved you from your sin by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone, that the only reasonable response to God's authority and mercy is to live your life as an acceptable sacrifice to God, seeking to glorify Him in the whole of life by knowing the truth, acting according to the knowledge of the truth, and spreading the knowledge of the truth, all out of gratitude for the grace of God given to you. Do you? I do. I do. Vow 7. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking the knowledge of the truth for yourself? and for your household, by diligently engaging in private worship <coughs> and household worship, both of which should be daily and should ordinarily include partaking of the scriptures, prayer, and the singing of psalms, keeping the Lord's Day, observing the appointed sacraments, and attending to the call of the church to gather for the worship of God and for the government of the church. Do you? Vow 8. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking to act according to the knowledge of the truth as revealed in the moral law, which is the whole duty that God requires of man, is summarized by the two great commandments, is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, and is explained accurately in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Do you? I do. I do. Vow 9. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking to spread the knowledge of the truth, by engaging in and supporting evangelism and discipleship in the whole counsel of God, providing a Christian education for your household, tithing to the church, and cooperating with others in the church, in order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you? I do. I do. Vow 10. Do you promise to carefully examine the doctrine, worship, and government of this church according to Scripture alone? to determine whether these marks of the church are being kept pure and entire, to submit under the government of this church in all lawful exercises of church authority, and to refuse submission unto all unlawful exercises of church authority, to follow the biblical requirements of conflict resolution prior to separation from this body, as summarized authoritatively in Matthew 18 and Acts 15, and subordinately in the constitution of the scripturalist church, and to work in the church with zeal and knowledge 
for peace, purity, and unity in the truth. Do you? I do. I do. Gentlemen, let's move to a baptism. And then we will sign the covenant in the right hand of Eric Scott Price, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Michael Alec Cotney, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Brothers, welcome. So now, those of you who will not be participating in the Lord's Supper, I would like to dismiss you with a blessing. Yes, Mr. Schaefer. Is there a part of the vow for children? No. Uh, the, uh, in the baptismal vows for children is a reading of things, but for joining in the same covenant. Thank you. Um, all right, so then, um, those of you who will not participate in the Lord's Supper, grace to you and peace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have been